Alfie, what superpower are we going to talk about today? The ability to make people laugh, to bring some more laughter into the world and make it a better place. Being on the comedy stage, but you absolutely want to make sure they're paying attention to you and nothing is a distraction. Having a think in general about what either surprises or irritates, annoys, angers you is usually quite a good avenue of finding a premise for a joke and then finding a way to flush it out. From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Dear friend, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander, and on today's episode, I have somebody who has superpowers that I can really do with myself. I think I'm going to find it super useful, and I'm sure you will too. He is a stand-up comedy MC and promoter and a comedy coach. However, he's not a comedian, or at least that's what he tells me. So welcome to the show, Alfie Nooks. How are you doing? I'm good, Paddy. Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. Alfie, I'm loving the shirt. Like I just saw the shirt and just the coordination. And I thought this man's got a fashion sense that I definitely don't have. Well, done. very few things coordinate with a shirt like this, but you're very kind. And Oh, so Alfie, I'm guessing you're a fellow Brit. Whereabouts are you based? I'm in London right now as I speak to you, but I'm originally from the fine town of Hull, up north. Oh, a northerner, proper northerner. Well, actually, tomorrow will mark the 30th anniversary of the time I moved to London. I'm something of a hybrid at this point. Got it. Got it. Well, I normally say to Londoners, I'm a northerner, but then when I meet people that are further up from yeah, Birmingham. Birmingham, not north. Yeah. No, not north. <laughs> Yeah, there's only a few people I can get away with saying that too, but definitely not another northerner. Alfie, what superpower are we going to talk about today? The ability to make people laugh, to bring some more laughter into the world and make it a better place. Oh, I love that. I think that everything should have laughter within it. So I, I'm really keen to hear more. However, as my regular listeners know, I always like to do a bit of a deep dive into our guest backgrounds. Were you always interested in this line of work or did you have other things on your mind as you were growing up? You know, to be fair, I fell into comedy. I was always a deep and profound comedy fan and had a secret hankering to give it a go, but frankly was too scared to, which I now recognize as ridiculous of me. My kind of origin story is I appeared on a TV show about films. I was something of the human IMDB back in the early 90s before the IMDB existed. And as a result, that show actually liked me enough uh, as somebody who appeared as a punter to offer me a job making the teas and the coffees in the next season. And so I skipped film school, took on this job, thought it would just be for six months. Then I would go to film school as planned. And then I got offered another job and suddenly I've got a freelance production career. I made all sorts of shows, but my niche was cinema programming. So most of the movie shows you might have ever seen in the 90s and the noughties, more often than not, I was involved somewhere along the line. That was my specialty. Oh, got it. Oh, what was that one that, that one bloke used to be on? I'm trying to remember the name. It's a really famous one. And he used to review movies on the BBC, I think. Well, Barry Norman was the guy back in the day. Jonathan Ross took over the show later on. It was filmed, named the year. 
That's the one. That's the one. Yes. How could I forget? Oh, so you were involved with that particular show as well? No, that's literally the only one I wasn't involved with. Okay. Okay. Well, the others were way better. Yes. They genuinely <laughs> were. Uh, Movie Watch, I was on for five seasons. I used to be Mark Kermode, reporter at Radio 1 for a couple of years. Uh, I made some documentaries for Universal Studios. I used to do a lot of kind of the documentary tie-ins to movies when they were being released. So I'd go and interview the stars and I think I did King Kong, Shall We Dance with Jennifer Lopez, Richard Gere, Sunshine, Danny Boyle, all those kind of films that when they did the tie-in for the release, I'd do like a half an hour documentary to tie-in amongst all sorts of other shows I made over the years. And then when I found out I was going to be a dad, I decided it was time to change gear because I've routinely been sent overseas, which is what I was hoping for, by the way. So when I found out I was going to be a dad, I was like, well, I need to be present. So I changed gears. Launched a business, terrible time to launch a big new business in 2007, given the banking crisis of 2008. That sent me bankrupt. And in that interim period, I, as a hobby, helped a friend run an open mic night. We, we teamed up. And then within a couple of years, we parted company and I launched what is now the We Are Funny project, which is just celebrated 10 years this year. So we run regular open mic nights, depending in which era, up to six shows a week. Currently, it's two. Luke Terry and, and uh, Paul Little are the resident MCs at the shows now. And then over the years, I've produced all sorts of in-person live workshops, bringing in professional comedians and MCs to teach professional skill sets to amateur comedians, all aspects of comedy, writing comedy for radio, TV, musical comedy, character comedy, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming for comedians. We did a couple of those. And obviously, by virtue of producing those, I have the privilege of taking the classes as well. And then because I was often emceeing four nights a week, I could take their tips. More often than not, I'd be testing what they said you shouldn't do. I'd largely figured out already as an MC what was good practice, but I wasn't always sure. They said, don't do X. Well, was that really true? So I could go and test it and they were always correct. So I had the privilege of, of learning at the knee of these brilliant pros. About 10,000 people have performed on We Are Funny Project stages over the years. So I've watched several thousand people. I've seen the hardest deaths, I've experienced some of them myself. I've seen the greatest successes. And I've been up really close for you to the acts that had talent and a solid work ethic to see them rise the ranks and see what they were doing right, see what people were doing wrong. So no, not a comedian, really always an MC, but I've had a front row seat at more lifestyle comedy than most people on the planet. So I was thinking then, Alfie, I might ask you at the end of the show for your funniest joke ever. I'm an MC in a live stand-up comedy room. It's a different dynamic to throwing out a joke, a podcast, without the, the setup, the warmth, the energy building up into the room. Just to throw you out a joke now would not be the same experience as me telling that joke in a room that I've warmed up where they'd come with the expectation of being made to laugh. So, sorry, I'm going to have to reject your kind offer to tell you a joke. And that's fascinating because... Most people would probably assume, oh, well, surely you must have like your favorite jokes. I'm just thinking about my audience. I'm guessing the majority of them are planning on getting on stage and becoming a stand-up comedian. However, I'm sure for the type of work that we do, you can bring in fun and comedy probably into lots of different aspects. Who should care about comedy and, and why? First of all, you said that you imagine lots of your audience don't imagine getting on a stage and becoming a stand-up comedian. And just to dive into that for a second, I've cooked a meal, I'm not a chef. I've played football, I'm not a footballer. 
And there's a level of open mic comedy in the earlier days where I would challenge that people could necessarily call themselves a comedian. They could say, I've had a go with stand-up comedy and that's entirely true. I think the claim of saying I am a stand-up comedian comes when there's some notable level of experience and, and some degree of success behind them. But getting up and having a go at comedy, doing some comedy, I honestly believe should be something of a bucket list choice for an awful lot of, lot of people. Much as you yourself just a moment ago suggested you, the classic question when I tell people what I do for a living in a, in a live environment, a party type of thing, uh, invariably two responses in almost every case. It's tell me a joke just as you have, and they get the exact same answer. And the other one is, oh, I could never do that. I, I couldn't get up on stage and try and make people laugh. And I'm like, you really could. I know public speaking is scary to a lot of people. Public speaking with the desire to make people laugh is a higher bar. I get it. But the fact is, if you rock up at an open mic night, and you won't just rock up and get a spot, you've got to approach somebody like me to book a spot some time in advance. So you've got an opportunity knowing on the first of next month, you're going to give this thing a go. You maybe don't want to bring friends with you, so you keep the social pressure off. And in an open mic room, there is such a range of people performing. Some of them are really super talented. There's some brilliant comedians on the open mic circuit. There really are. They, they might not be at the pro level, or they might be at the pro level, and they've popped into a night like one of mine to work out some new material for a radio show or a TV appearance. That happens often enough. But to turn up and do five minutes of material, the reality is it's way more scary in the minds of the people doing it. The people in the room aren't that invested. They didn't pay to get into an open mic show. And even the best comedian of the night, I've heard so many people as they leave the room, one asks the other, an audience saying, who did you like most? They never remember the name of the act. They just go, the tall guy with the red shirt, he was my favorite. So a lot of the room will be other comedians and they all know what it's like to fail on stage. It's a fairly steep learning curve. So while somebody getting up and trying it feels it's super scary, actually everybody else watching isn't putting anything like that value on them. So I hope that's some level of kind of reassurance that tick off that bucket list, tell somebody, you know, I've had a go at stand-up comedy, get some impressive points because it does take some courage and some creativity for sure. And then once you've got into comedy, I suggest doing half a dozen gigs would be good. That first one is really just about passing the psychological barrier, being courageous and showing you can do it. And then try it in a handful of rooms, get a feel for it, see what it's like in different places, get a sense of the people in the scene because there's some really cool people and all night long while you're not performing, you're faced with a sea of people who are trying to make you laugh. It's a really fun evening. Very quickly make friends within this community. And the transferable skills are considerable, not least public speaking, but coming up with creative ideas, how to build rapport, gives you a sense of body language. There's all sorts of transferable skills if somebody's good at comedy. And let's not forget one of the greatest social lubricants is making somebody laugh. If you make somebody laugh, they tend to like you. They're more inclined to like you. And that can be helpful in your career, in your dating life, in all sorts of circumstances. So there's a multitude of reasons to have a go at stand-up comedy, and I'm on something of a mission to encourage even more people to do it, even though more than 10,000 people have already performed in my rooms. Oh, that's remarkable. And Alfie, if somebody out there is preparing for a talk or going to be in front of a crowd for whatever reason, and they're thinking of incorporating some comedy into their workshop or talk, where would they start? Is there some ways that you can suggest some tips of how do they build that inspiration? It'd just be great to hear like some of your hints and tips on that. Sure. Well, first of all, I think if somebody's giving a talk and they want to inject some humor in it, but they're not being billed as an outright comedian, they're not being sold on the concept that they're going to make you laugh. The bar is actually relatively low. 
So again, I don't think people should stress themselves out with it too much. You, you you'll probably don't want to put in too many jokes, but a nice joke at the top of this, the, I was about to say set talk, certainly ending on a joke leaves a nice warm taste in the mouth of the audience and peppering a few gags in throughout. Uh, referring to truthful things, if there's something really evident in the room that clearly everybody will have noticed a weird piece of sculpture or something happened earlier in the day and a reference to that in a certain lighthearted fashion can do it. Acknowledging the truth that nobody's really mentioned, but everybody's sort of is always uh, a fairly easy goal. Having a think in general about what either surprises or irritates, uh, annoys, angers you is usually quite a good avenue of finding a premise for a joke and then finding a way to flesh it out. So if whatever the industry might be, say it's an accountancy convention and it, they're talking about that, then finding a common pain in the ass aspect of being an accountant, maybe there's a piece of software that's notorious or something along these lines and making a joke along those lines, because that's a unifying point. As well as people recognizing it, they also recognize only my tribe would get this. So look for those surprises. That's usually a premise. Look for the things that irritate and anger. That's usually a premise. Something that's specific to this crowd. If it is some kind of talk convention, a lot of that crowd are going to have a lot in common. Find something that speaks to them. I'm just thinking about a recent example of a talk I did over in the Netherlands and I forgot my belt from home. Like I was in such a rush and my trousers don't fall down, but they do need a belt. And I was on stage, started the talk and I kept shuffling around because I kept trying to pull up my jeans. And after about five minutes, I just had to stop and I just had to acknowledge it in the room. I said, mm -hmm. look, I'm really sorry. If you see me doing this weird shimmy throughout today, I said, it's because I forgot my belt. And it became this running theme just yeah. by accident. I hadn't planned to say this, but it was just like by accident. And by the end of the talk, I was getting lots of laughs. Every time I'd shimmy, they'd, they'd be laughing. And then Right at the end, we asked everybody to write on a piece of paper their one big takeaway from the talk. And you should buy a new belt. Pretty much, yeah. We then got people to scrunch up the paper and throw the papers at us. And I was only afterwards when I was reading them through that one, but one guy had put on there, um, don't forget your belt next time. Oh, okay, well, that, that's good advice in any scenario. So if you'd plan this a little bit more so, and I accept that you couldn't really, but right. you might have been able to, going back to your previous question about how to funny it up, you might have been able to generate a story as to where your belt had gone, like why you had lost your belt. That's immediately interesting. One of the aspects of being a successful comedian is to be fascinating as well as funny, to capture the audience's interest and hold it. You want a hook at the beginning of a speech. You want a hook at the beginning of a, a comedy set, something that grabs the audience's attention. In a comedy set, ideally something that establishes something of who you are. So it could be a comment about how you look. That's very obvious and easy. I find it a bit hack, by the way, when I see comedians come on stage and they've got a passing resemblance to a celebrity and they say something while patting their belly like, oh, Jason Statham's let himself go, you know, something like that. I find that really hack in a comedy room, but that might work enough at some kind of talk or convention in a professional universe. That would be for you to decide. But then to reveal something that the audience don't know about you, but they could find out about you easily. So you're sharing with them. It could just take a quick chat with you at the bar, a quick look at your social media. They find out you've recently been on holiday to X place. You play football for a team, this kind of thing, not a secret, just a piece of information and attach a joke to that. And then you go one level deeper and you share something with the crowd that they could only know because you've told them. And that can be something funny as well. It could be a 
story of you messing up in childhood. You've obviously got time to practice for this. So there's three levels of introduction they see, what you easily share, and quote-unquote a secret. So you could have attached a story as to how you lost your belt and come up with something surreal in the Eddie Izzard kind of level, or it could have been something really quite light and frivolous. But you did lay the groundwork for a running joke. You could refer to that again and again. And audiences, I can definitely say this, they always like a callback. And just to be clear, a callback is a joke that refers to a joke you told earlier. Joke, audiences love them. They're a very good way of wrapping up any set or any talk in this case. So if you can finish on a laugh, and a laugh that will get a couple of extra points out of 10, if we're marking the laughter out of 10, because it references a joke you told earlier. The audience somehow have a sense of, oh, I remember something you said eight minutes ago. I'm brilliant, and I get the joke. It just really supercharges that closing joke. And if you leave the stage to laughter and happy crowd, then that's very close to a job well done, I would argue. So I was thinking about something that we were talking about recently in a talk that I did, and it's all about how do you keep an audience engaged? And one of the points we made was an effect called a serial position effect. And a bit of psychology behind that is the fact that people usually remember what happens at the start of something, forget everything happens in the middle and normally remember mm -hmm. the ending. And so yeah. it's good to really emphasize the thing that you said at the start, a bit like what you're saying there. I guess from your perspective, psychology, how important of a role does that, that play into the way that you go about designing your humor and the way that you're delivering? Well, I'd be clear that I don't ever really consider it through the filter of quote-unquote psychology, as you've put it, but I routinely raise the concept with my students of with always dealing with the subconscious of the audience. So it's a spoken word art form. We want their attention. Maybe more in your university is giving a lecture or a talk in my university. It's being on a comedy stage. But you absolutely want to make sure they're paying attention to you and nothing is a distraction. And a way of doing that is to hook their attention. For example, I might come onto stage and say something like, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. It's one of the wildest, weirdest things ever. Look, I'll come back to that. And then I'll go into whatever else I feel I need to say. And the audience are already going, oh, I want to find out what that thing was. Anything that you say on stage that doesn't scan, that breaks any kind of line of logic, for example, I'll stick with what I've speaking to fellow experts in your industry. And if you reference something that they know not to be true, let's say you say the CEO of a famous company is called X, and actually that's not the name of that CEO. In that moment, every audience member who knows anything will go into their head and go, that's not right, that bloke's called Dave. And for that few seconds, you've lost them. They're having something of an internal dialogue, and you've also damaged your own credibility. They already know that you've proven yourself to be not trustworthy on some element, or at least ill-informed. And that will damage the level of attention they're prepared to pay to you. So what's true in the lecture circuit is equally true in the comedy circuit. You can go as weird and surreal as you like, but whatever happens, the logic must be true. It must scan in the review. And so much of comedy is based on a surprise. So much of what a comedian often will do is mislead and misdirect. So the audience are led down this path thinking that we're going here, which is in a movie. If you're watching a horror film, and you're waiting for the serial killer and the slasher film to jump out. And you go, no, they're going to come from behind the shower curtain. No, they're going to jump out of the cupboard. And then the doctor plays a trick and a cat jumps out with a scream. And then the serial killer jumps out. Every audience member in every second of the beginning of that scene is in their head subconsciously trying to predict when the serial killer is going to jump out. 
And so it is anytime we're talking, whether it's in a lecture or whether it's on comedy stage. So laying those hooks there, being consistent, leading them down a path, and then so much of comedy is surprise, dropping them in a place they weren't expecting. And as they can subconsciously reflect, I know that still makes sense. I, that, that word was a homonym. It has two meanings. I was led to believe it was deer as in the animal. It's actually deer as in my beloved. And now it makes sense. So these are some of the devices you could use to hook attention and uh, raise a laugh, I would hope. Yeah. And it sounds like being a good storyteller is really important from what you're sure. saying. Yeah. yeah. People love stories. It's arguably the oldest art form. And stories take us on a journey from a beginning to a middle to an end, depending on your structure. And you can throw forward, as I did earlier, as I mentioned to you. You wouldn't believe what happened to me. I'll come back and tell you about that. That's from, I'm still waiting for that bit, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, it's more of an example in an outright story, but there's ways and means of, of coaxing interest. As I mentioned, I was a, a film journalist in a former career, so I'm deeply versed in kind of storytelling from that universe. And it really wasn't long when I was in comedy that I realized that the overlap was considerable with what comedians are doing because they're looking to come up with original ideas, evoke images. They're just painting images in the audience's mind so much as on the screen. They're taking them on a journey. They're wrong-footing them, misdirecting them, surprising them, but bringing them to a satisfactory conclusion. There's immense overlap. To that effect, I've actually created three online courses, one for beginners. I would be anybody who's not tried stand-up yet or anybody within their first 100 gigs, which is typically maybe their first year in the circuit. There's one for MCs. So there's obviously huge amounts of information there for people who are public speakers, so much as stand-up comedy MCs, because we're the a fairly rare breed within the comedy community. And then there's an advanced one, which is where I've created stepping forward in stand-up, but it's the cinematic system of stand-up because often when I've coached people, I've pitched them, as I said to you, you are the world's lowest budget film director. You're merely creating ideas in minds rather than on a screen needing a crew of 300 people. But I actually realized after a while that was somewhat reductive. Actually, every open mind comedian is also their own producer, their own screenwriter, story by leading roles. And then they've got to navigate so many of the same arenas that cinema does. You've got competitions, critics, reviewers, ultimately you want an agent, right down to marketing, publicity, hair, makeup, and wardrobe. So I've created the advanced course using filmmaking dynamics, but to teach how to write better material, how to perform better, and actually to move your career forward as well. Huge overlap, nice. storytelling and cinema. And what are some of the other elements that are important? For example, when we're public speaking, we, we talk about tone and the pitch of your voice and having some variation and body language. Like how important Absolutely. are all of these things and body the language, visual performance? Body language is crucial. It's a skill for life, not just for public speaking or stand-up comedy. I've been teaching my son stand-up, uh, excuse me. <laughs> well, my son actually did his first stand-up set when he was seven years old. Wow. Uh, but I've been teaching him body language since I've been teaching him actual language. Because it's just so important. I think the line I have in the course is it shows you how to read people and also how to lead people. The audience are always going to be much more receptive to you if they like you. And if your body language is appropriate and you're more open, friendly, arguably to a degree vulnerable, these are things that people connect with, then they're going to take your message, whether it's a stand-up joke or a lecture, and that much more easily. If you've got your arms folded, your chin down, and you make no eye contact, or at least give the impression you're never making eye contact with anybody in the room, then you've just made your job that much harder when you're really just carrying with the words. And then, of course, the words are inflected by whatever tone you're using. So the words are all important, but it's a package. It's tone, it's body language, rapport, charisma, and how you put the whole thing together for whoever your audience might be.
And would you say everybody in the world could acquire this skill at a basic level anyway? Or are there some people that are just beyond hope? Like, what's your experience of having taught all these people? I can't speak to everybody in the world. <laughs> I've met some people... I mean, certainly a couple of my teachers at school struck me as the most humorless people ever, and I couldn't ever imagine them doing anything that might uh, gain a laugh. What I will say is I've, I've taken some criticism from some professional comedian friends of mine. That's how they make a living, a very high standard. When I first started uh, doing this, saying you can't teach funny, and my response was really clear, no, but I can teach funnier. And it was really clear to me, and to, to their credit, they all conceded the point. It was like, their level of funny is... Uh, the peak, they're professional stand-up comedians. Their standard of funny is as high as it gets. But I can teach somebody who's a little bit funnier to be funnier still. I can teach somebody to be quite funny, to be very funny. And if somebody's truly humorless, I can't make any promises. But I can definitely give them some ideas, tips, tricks, techniques. There are structures to writing jokes. I've already explained misdirection and then dropping them in a surprise place. The first course uh, that I have, the beginner's one, is it's got seven joke writing exercises in that course that anybody can do, but whoever does them will come up with a different joke. Because very often stand-up comedy is predicated on what do you think of the world? What do you reckon? What's your unique experience of the world and your take on the world? As I mentioned earlier, if you go around and observe things that surprise or irritate or anger you, well, you can send two people on an hour-long walk in the same area, and they're both going to come back with a different list of what those things are. It doesn't create cookie-cutter comedians, but the structure of the joke will be fed by a different observation or feeling or experience, making each act hopefully unique. And there are structures to writing jokes that are available to everybody. Naturally, some people are much more adept at it than others. But I think everybody can take a step forward, and many people can take huge steps forward. It's just about learning, as we would with any skill set, and something of a work ethic, putting yourself out there. Some people, they just are able to make a joke on the spot, like mm -hmm. off-the-cuff type of jokes, and they've just got that wit, and things just come naturally. And yeah. for others, like me, I, I often have to like really think hard about what I'm about to say. So if I have something prepared, I think it, it helps me a little bit. What, what's your advice there? If somebody did want to be a bit more fluid in their comedy, how could they achieve that? Well, what you've really referred to there is, is really on, on point, I would say, because one of the skill sets of a comedian is to give the impression that, oh, this is just occurring to me now, when in reality, they've told that joke or a version of that joke a hundred times, and then they listen back to it, they should have recorded it, listen back to it, go... I, I took too long to say that. There's too many words in the setup. I've given away too much information in the setup so that the audience are able to guess the punchline. So they edit it down and then they come back and they haven't given enough information in the new version. And now the punchline doesn't make sense. So there's a constant state of calibrating. And I get a lot of people coming into my rooms. I've watched over 500 people do their first ever gig. Okay. And a lot of that, they come from all sorts of places. It's a broad church. We have like sometimes in their 80s. It's British, non-British, every ethnicity, every sexuality, 18-year-olds. It's a really broad church and open mic comedy. But some of the people that come in have been encouraged to come and do it because their friends tell them they're really funny in the pub and they should you know, have a go at stand-up. And that's a good place to begin from. But the dynamic of being funny with your mate on the table in the pub five pints in, as opposed to getting on a stage and being the only person in the room facing that direction with a spotlight on you, you're the only one with amplification, that's a different dynamic. 
being spontaneously funny, yeah, I think that'll be a help to start, but it's certainly not a requirement because, as you said, you'd rather have time to prepare. Well, you know when the gig's going to be. You've got the time to prepare and write jokes in advance of that. And then after that gig, listen back, watch back. Everybody's got a mobile phone. You should be recording your set. See what didn't work. See if you can figure out why and fix it. See what did work. More of that, please. And sometimes you get to laugh when you're not expecting it. Something just golden and spontaneously falls from your mouth. And you wouldn't remember it. You're in the heat of performance, but you found it on the recording. Good. I'll use that each time. Comedians very often are given the impression of being spontaneous and, and speaking off the cuff. I assure you, they have sweated blood and tears for a long time to get the jokes as good as they are for you as, a, as their audience. I can't say I've seen lots of comedians, but j just some of the more commercial comedians. Paul Chowdhury has to be my favorite, mm -hmm. just because I've got that pride. Indian connection with him. And yeah, he's a fantastic actor, Indian or otherwise, though. There's no two ways about it. Brilliantly talented comedian. And I just remember I, I took my wife to watch him live in Wolverhampton. And I don't think she's ever been to a stand up comedian show before. And uh, it was her first time. And it takes a lot for her to laugh. And <laughs> I certainly can't achieve it. And so within the first literally two minutes she was in hysterics and she was literally crying because yeah. he was just so funny and it was just amazing that the way he, he kicked off his show but then he picks on someone in the audience and it just felt like he was just making this stuff up on the spot but i'm mm -hmm. pretty sure he must have done this no. a few times right there's and, a few yeah. people out there who are masters of that's speaking to the audience who refer to as crowd work there's an American comedian called Big J Okerson, who I think is the acknowledged king of just really walking on stage with this certain idea and a certain amount of jokes in his back pocket. And we'll just torture the crowd and just go. But most of his kind of practice, so they've got an idea of what the potential answers might be if they ask somebody. They've got some, what seems off the cuff put downs or banter, however you might want to phrase it. But the average professional comedian, if they're, if they're highest, the apex of stand-up comedy and they're, they're getting something like a Netflix special that goes to a global audience. That's a rarefied, that's taking about two years to generate one of those specials. And they're practiced seasoned pros who can get up at any stage at any time and work it out. It takes practice, rehearsal, editing, revision, but ultimately if people have some chops and the work ethic, then hopefully they can get to the level of Paul Chowdhury, who is fantastic. And is there any tips on structuring a joke? So like number of words before you drop the punchline of the joke? I wouldn't talk about it in the number of words before dropping a joke, but I'll speak to in an open mic room, typically, and it varies around the world, but typically they're dealing in five minute sets. Okay. The average person speaks three words a second. That's not necessarily true of me always. I'm a fast speaker. I get that. But the average person speaks three words a second, which means in a five minute set, they've got 900 words except they probably should be a bit fewer, maybe 850, because they want to pause, hopefully laughter breaks and, and the rest. So it's only about 850 words. And in that five minute set, the target they're going for is 15 big, three laughs a minute would be great. If somebody's doing that in the open mic circuit, I will be certain to progress them and move them to a 10 minute spot and, and move. And it can be, you don't have a laugh at all for 50 seconds. You're telling some story that on its face is somewhat harrowing. I mean, a lot of comedy, a lot of storytelling, a lot of ways of captivating an audience is to say something that generates and builds tension. And actually, when you drop the punchline, it all resolves itself and makes sense. The release of that tension is the laughter from the people in the room. So it's, it's entirely reasonable for a comedian 
to tell a story that sounds maybe a bit, woe is me, my wife's just left me, I got fired this morning. It's just a cavalcade of disasters in their lives and evoking empathy from the audience. And then they take 50 seconds to do all of that. And then they drop the punchline and then they tag it with another punchline and another in quick succession. And you've still got three big laughs in a minute. It didn't have to be necessarily in 20 second increments. So that's roughly how my work. I would urge people to make sure the laughs come often enough. I think it would be pretty tragic to have a laugh to free set for four minutes and then wedging 15 punchlines in the last minute every four seconds. That's not going to work. You want to space them out appropriately. But once you've written a set or a script or a lecture, whatever it might be, you can look at it and go, okay, I've, I've gone a minute and a half without a shot at laughter here. If that's what I'm truly aiming for, I should probably look at this piece here and see if I can find a funny aspect. And of course, like mine are designed to help you find the funny. You might have the idea, the notion of how to be fascinating first. I think it's more important for an open mind comedian to be interesting than it is to be funny in their first iterations on stage. An audience is going to be rather forgiving if you held their attention, but you didn't make them laugh so much. But being interesting is still good. And then you can maybe start building some jokes in on top. You definitely want to take shots at goal and have jokes in there. But if you are interesting, telling a tale of fascination, wow, wonder, a unique experience they've never heard before, the wildest thing that ever happened to you, the worst day you ever had, the worst date you ever had, whatever it might be, then the audience are going to be involved and they're always quite happy with that. I would urge people to, in standard kind of advices, open with your best or your second best joke and then close with your best or second best joke. And it refers to that concept you mentioned earlier. People will remember how you begin and winning them over with a laugh at the beginning relaxes everybody because they feel they're in good hands. They already like you. You've already made some kind of connection and rapport. So if you can make that first joke work, You've already done an awful lot of good work for yourself. And over the years, I've seen a huge amount of comedians who have made the audience laugh as soon as they walk on stage within the first five seconds, and they made them laugh as they leave the stage. They didn't get much at all for the four and a half minutes in between, but I'm watching the audience as much as I'm watching the acts, and the audience, by and large, seem entirely satisfied. They've almost been tricked out of realizing that the middle four and a half minutes isn't be good. So those comedians sometimes get a tap on the shoulder from the likes of me and go, yeah, fair enough, but can you write some more jokes and package them into the middle, please? But it's amazing how far you can get tricking the audience if your first joke is good and your last joke is good. But of course, I encourage people to go for those three big laughs a minute if they possibly can. Yeah. Oh God, that sounds very challenging. I'm just thinking about if I had to do that. It would take a while. Let me be clear. Somebody on the open mic circuit, I would expect them to take around about a year. Something that's, I would expect, in the region of 100 gigs of experience to be able to create what we call a tight five, a reliably solid set. In reality, they should have a tight seven so they can go, okay, I'm going to not do this bit tonight. And this bit's a little bit more relevant to something in the news that can kind of link it in. So it's, yeah, 100 gigs or thereabouts to get to those 15 big banker laughs in a five-minute set. So somebody such as yourself, who's not a comedian, but certainly a public speaker, that's a high standard for you. You just need to get a handful of jokes, you know, not 15 in five minutes. That's for us. I'm going to be watching Comedy Central now and trying to get some inspiration, Alvin. <laughs> what if things are going wrong? Do you always have a plan B at all? If, for example... First few jokes haven't landed and then you're like, oh, actually, I know the rest won't land now either. Do you just don't tell them in a public speaking 
setting or would you say have a couple as backup? There's more than one way to skin a cat. I would suggest that acknowledging has its place. So always having a couple of jokes in the back pocket that aren't really designed for either the set or the talk is handy so that if you lose your train of thought, you've got something to lead to. If the jokes you've already tried that maybe have a certain tone and flavor, maybe the specialist to the industry they're speaking to or however it might be. A couple of jokes that are dissimilar to that, short, fast, punchy jokes, ideally that are somewhat proven, you can fall back on those. So you may want to, and it's different strokes for different folks. I've got to be deadly clear about that. But you may go, oh, the material about being an accountant's not flying. Let me tell you a little bit about what happened on my holiday when I was mugged, folks. Let's just change gear for a second, <laughs> shall we? So a certain truthfulness and acknowledging what's going on. As an MC, I, I, I will very frequently go that way if things aren't working. By and large, things do work on MC. So it's been a while since I've had to draw upon that. But acknowledging the truth. In a stand-up comedy room, there's sometimes somebody with a crazy laugh, like a really wild laugh. And everybody in the room's clocked it. They know it. I'll wait three or four acts in, make sure that weird laugh is established, and then reference that laugh. I won't embarrass the person who has the laugh. It's a comedy room. We want people to laugh. I'm not there to embarrass anybody. But everybody in that room will somehow or other have thought, Jesus, that laugh's mad. What's that about? And so for me, just saying it, just acknowledging it, will be a little bit of release of that tension, a little bit of a shared experience, bonding experience. So there's different ways, tricks and techniques, but acknowledging things and being honest, being a little bit vulnerable is often a smart way of going. It feels hard, I accept that, but it's a good avenue, possibly. Oh, brilliant, Alfie. Time's just flown, actually, and we are fast approaching end of time. And before we wrap up, Alfie, if people want to know more from you and want to get in touch with you to find out about the training courses you mentioned as well, how can they do that? Pretty much everything's hosted on the website. That's wearefunnyproject.com. As I mentioned, there's three courses for beginners. They're all designed for comedians, but they would be highly valuable to anybody who has public speaking responsibilities of any sort. There's a mailing list we have as well. And if anybody signs up to that, they get a free ebook. I'm about to change it up. I'm not sure when this episode goes out, but the new one's going to be eight ways to turbocharge your stand-up comedy. There's some videos on there that give you samples from the courses. And there's a litany of blogs, all free, of course, with tons of advice from all aspects of creative writing. So it's a bit of a one-stop shop. We are funnyproject.com. Oh, brilliant. Alfie, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure getting to know you over these last few minutes. And uh, yeah, I've learned a lot. Thanks, mate. Take care.